Hi, and thank you for joining another episode of Jesus Rewind. I was at a local discount bookstore this past weekend, and I found the Christian section, of course, and found this book called um, How to Find God, Living Water for Those Who Thirst. And it has a little icon saying New Living Translation, so the NLT version of the Bible. And I always love um, Bibles disguised as um, actual novels because it's always um, great to just for people to find and stumble upon and open it up and realize they're reading the word of God, which is in reality what we all ought to be reading more of. And so this book is in particular just the New Testament of the Bible in the NLT version. Um, but the beginning of the book, um, it does deliver on its promise and it has several, several um, chapters on um just Christianity basics, um, how you can know God, how to find God, um, the gospel, um, everything like that. And so for this episode, I just wanted to read through a few of the sections and um, go from there. So starting on the first page, this chapter is called How You Can Know God. Purpose, meaning, a reason for living, these are all things we desire and search for in life. Despite steps each one of us takes to find purpose and meaning in life, we still feel empty, unfulfilled. That is because there is a spiritual emptiness in each of our lives. We each have a hole in our heart, a spiritual vacuum, deep within our soul, a God-shaped blank. Possessions won't fill this hole, nor will success. Relationships alone cannot satisfy this emptiness, and morality in and of itself falls miserably short of occupying this space. In fact, even religion cannot fill the void of our heart. There's only one way to effectively fill that void. This way will not only help us to have a life that is full and rich on this earth, but more important, will give us the absolute hope of spending eternity in the presence of God. Before we can truly appreciate this good news, though, we need to understand the bad news, which is a serious problem we all have. So what's the problem? Sin. The Bible clearly identifies our serious problem as sin. Sin is not just an act that the actual nature but the actual nature of our being. In other words, we are not sinners because we sin. Rather we sin because we are sinners. We are born with a nature to do wrong. King David, the Old Testament Israelite ruler, wrote for I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Psalm 51, 5. Because we are born sinners, sinning comes to all of us naturally. That is why it is futile to think that the answer to all of life's problems come from within. According to the Bible, the problem is within. Scripture tells us the human heart is most deceitful and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Jeremiah 17 verse 9. We are not basically good. We are basically sinful. This sinfulness spills out into everything we do. Every problem we experience in our society today can be traced back to our refusal to live God's way. Clear back to the Garden of Eden, Adam made his choice and he suffered the consequences of it, setting the pattern that all humanity would follow. The Bible explains when Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, 
Adam's one sin brought condemnation upon everyone. Romans 5, verse 12 and 18. That's not fair, you may protest. Why should we suffer because of that, of what someone else has done? Yet, given the opportunity, each one of us would have done the same thing as Adam. In fact, not a single day passes that we do not face the same test that was set before Adam. God has given us the freedom to choose between two separate paths, the path that leads to life and the path that leads to death. The Bible says today, I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life, that you and your descendants might live. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19. This next section is called without a leg to stand on. Someone may say, but I live a good life. I try to be kind and considerate to others. I live by the Ten Commandments. But the truth of the matter is that the Ten Commandments, or the law, as they are called in the Bible, were not given to make us good, but to show us how bad we are. The Bible tells us no one can ever be made right in God's sight by doing what His law commands. For the more we know God's law, the clearer it becomes that we aren't obeying it. Romans 3.20 The purpose of the law is to make us realize how sinful we are. You might say that God's law was given to shut our mouths and show us that we desperately need His help and forgiveness for our terminal condition as sinners. Look at the passages below to get a better understanding of the nature and seriousness of sin. We have all missed the mark, number one. See Romans 3.23, which says, We have all sinned. For those that would claim to be the sole exception to this eternal truth, verse 10 of this chapter plainly says, No one is good, not even one. Romans 3.10 Another word for good is righteous. The word righteous means one who is as he or she ought to be. When the Bible says that no one is righteous or good, it is not so much referring to behavior, but to inner character. What exactly is God's glorious standard that Romans 3.23 says we have failed to meet? God's glorious standard is absolute perfection. Jesus said, but you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.48 in other words, anyone who is not as good as God is not acceptable to him. One definition of sin, derived from the Greek word hamartia, is to miss the mark. As far as the mark of perfection goes, we miss it by a mile. Although our sinful nature makes it impossible for us to live up to God's standard, we cannot blame sin or our nature alone. Sin is also a deliberate act, number two. See Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. Another word for sins in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 is transgressions or trespasses. The word speaks of a lapse or deviation from truth, in contrast to simply missing the mark. This is a deliberate action. Because sin is a deliberate action, we cannot blame our sin on our society or our environment or our mental or physical state. Everyone has chosen to do what is wrong. If we protest this point, we are only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth, which it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. Number three, the ultimate penalty for sin is death. Romans 6, verse 23. 
According to the Bible, we have offended a holy God. We have not done this once or twice, but so many times that we are unable to keep keep count. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Wages are something that you are paid for work rendered. In other words, you earn your wages. Because we have all repeatedly sinned, we have earned the penalty of death, which is eternal torment and punishment in a place called hell. Amid all this talk about sin and death, there is some good news. God has given us a way to escape the penalty of our sin. He has made it possible for us to have a relationship with him and enjoy the hope of eternal life without punishment. So what is the solution? Jesus Christ. God understood our problem and knew that we could do nothing about it. Because God loves us, he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to earth to bridge the chasm of sin that separates us from him. This next section is called, Why Jesus Can Bridge the Gap. There has never been anyone like Jesus. For starters, Jesus was not conceived in the womb of his mother through natural means. Rather, he was supernaturally conceived in the womb of a young virgin named Mary. Because of this supernatural conception, Jesus, who is a holy God, also became wholly human. Though Jesus is God, he chose to lay aside the privileges of his deity to live on earth as a man. The Bible describing the sacrifice Christ made in becoming a man says that Jesus made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, the obe- he obediently humbled himself, even further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. It is extremely important to note that Jesus did not cease to be God when he came to earth. He simply laid aside his divine privileges and walked the earth as a man. In doing so, he was personally able to experience the gamut of human emotions, ranging from happiness to deep sorrow. He felt what it was like to be tired, cold, and hungry. Moreover, he came to this earth with a clear objective in mind, to bridge that gap between us and God. When the Israelites of the Old Testament sinned, they would have the high priest go into the temple and offer an animal sacrifice to God to atone for their sins. In a symbolic sense, this was a way of putting one's sin on, sins on the animal, which stood in the place of the guilty person. The Bible teaches, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9 verse 22. The sacrificial rituals carried out by the Israelites in the Old Testament foreshadowed what Jesus would do when he came to this earth. He took the sin of the world upon himself when he hung on the cross so many years ago. Numerous Old Testament prophecies pointed not only to his birth and life, but also to his death, including the way in which he would die. Jesus knew from the beginning that he had come expressly to die for the sins of humanity, he also knew that this sacrifice would be made on a Roman cross. He began his final journey to the cross of Calvary at a place called Caesarea Philippi, and he often spoke of his impending death with his disciples. Scripture records, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that he had to go to Jerusalem, and he told them what would happen to him there. He would suffer at the hands of the leaders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. 
he would be killed and he would be raised on the third day, Matthew 16, verse 21. He was eventually arrested on false charges after Judas Iscariot, one of his own disciples, betrayed him. But it was no accident. If humanity was going to be put in touch with God and have the barrier that separated them removed, something drastic had to be done. In essence, with one hand, Jesus took a hold of a holy God, and with the other hand, he took hold of this sinful human race. As crude nails were pounded into his hands, he bridged the gap for us. We must not forget, however, that three days after his crucifixion, Jesus rose from the dead. If it is true that you can't keep a good man down, then it is even truer that you can't keep the God man down. The next section is called, We Put Jesus on the Cross. The necessity of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross shows just how radical our situation was as a fallen people. It's been said that you can, you can tell the depth of a well by how much rope is lowered. When we look at how much rope was lowered from heaven, we realize how grave our situation really was. For that reason, don't blame the people of that day for putting Jesus on the cross. We are just as guilty as they. In reality, it was not the Roman soldiers who put him on the cross, nor was it the Jewish leaders. It was our sins that made it necessary for Jesus to volunteer for this torturous and humiliating death. Read the verses and notes below to see exactly what Jesus did for us. So there's three points in this section too. Number one, the greatest demonstration of love. Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 8. Jesus did not die for us while we were his friends, but while we were his enemies, opposing him by our sinfulness. Yet in spite of all of this, God demonstrated his love for us by dying on a cross. In this verse, the Apostle Paul explains that Jesus did not simply die for humanity as a whole, but that he died for us as individuals. Elsewhere, Paul writes, Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2, verse 20. Whenever you are tempted to doubt God's love for you, take a long look at the cross on which Jesus died. Then realize that for all practical purposes, it was not nails that held him to the cross, but love. Number two, forsaken that we might be forgiven. See Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 49. Many of us have heard this story at some point in our lives, yet the significance behind his, this heart-wrenching scene is often missed or misunderstood. This was not simply some good teacher being cru- crucified for his beliefs. It was God in human form who hung on that cross, bridging the gap between sinful people and a holy God. Matthew's gospel tells us that when Jesus hung on that cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46. Many Bible scholars believe that those words marked the precise moment at which God placed the sins of the world upon his son. The Bible speaking of God says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Habakkuk 1, verse 13. For that reason, the Holy Father had to turn his face and pour out his wrath upon his own son. On the cross, Jesus received the wages that were due us. He was not hurt. He was not heard that we might be heard. The ear of God was closed to Jesus for a time that it might never be closed to us. 
Number three, Christ, the sole mediator. See First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. Why is there only one mediator who is qualified to bridge the gap between God and people? Haven't there been other religious leaders who have claimed to have the way to God? Haven't some of them also died as a result of their message? While the answers to these questions may be yes, the truth is that not one of these other leaders was fully God and fully human. That is why Jesus is uniquely qualified to deal with sin. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6. Acts 4.12 tells us there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name in all of heaven for people to call on to save them. And most important, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Though it is true that you must believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, in order to receive eternal life and be a true Christian, there is still something else you must do. What is our response? Accept God's offer. To know Jesus Christ personally and have your sins forgiven, you must believe that you are a sinner, separated from God, and that your only hope is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came and died for your sins. To stop here, however, would be to stop short of salvation. There are two things you must do now to enter into a relationship with the God from whom you have been separated. Number one, turn from your sins or repent. As Jesus began his public ministry, his first message was, Turn from your sins, Mark 1, verse 15. In essence, Jesus was telling the people to repent, to acknowledge their sinning, change their minds, and change the direction of their lives. Look at it this way. In the past, we have been blinded by our sins, causing us to run from God. As we repent, we do a U-turn and start running towards him. It is not enough just to be sorry for our sins. We must also change our lifestyle, for the Bible teaches that God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 In other words, if you are really sorry for something, it will result in a change in your actions. The Apostle Paul summed up this change distinctly when he quoted Jesus, who had said that people must turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Acts 26 verse 18 You see, there are some things only God can do, and some things only you can do. Only God can remove your sins and give you the gift of eternal life. But only you can turn from your sins and receive Jesus as your Savior. That brings up the second thing you must do to respond to God's offer. Number two. Believe in Jesus Christ and receive him into your life. Having seen the enormity of your sin and having decided to turn from it, you then must believe in and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Becoming a Christian, however, is far more than following a creed or trying to live by certain standards. Jesus said that you must be born again, or more literally, born from above. John 3 verse 3. This spiritual rebirth happens when we personally believe in Jesus Christ. Receive him by inviting him into our lives and turn from our sins. In other words, we ask Jesus to come and take residence in our lives, making the changes he, he deems necessary. A person must take this all-important step in order to become a child of God. 
Notice that this offer is yours for the asking and it is free. You don't have to work for it. Trying to clean up your life before you make this life-changing decision. The Bible says, The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 Being a Christian also means having a relationship with the living God. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Look, here I stand at the door and knock. If you hear me calling and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal as friends. To better understanding the, understand the meaning of this verse, it is important to understand the culture at the time it was written. Eating together in Bible times was a long, drawn-out affair. People would sit on chairs behind tables in a formal setting as we do. But they, did not, but they would sit on the floor reclining on pillows around a low table. The relaxed atmosphere made meals a time when you would not only satisfy your appetite, but also receive a gratifying serving of enjoyable table conversation. You would share your heart and life with those who sat beside you. Consequently, when Jesus says that he will share a meal with us, it implies intimacy, closeness, and friendship. He offers this to us, but we must first hear him calling us. To hear God calling us, we must know how he speaks. One way in which God speaks to us is described in the Bible as a still small voice this could be described in another way that it as that tug you might may have felt on your heart from the holy spirit showing you your need for jesus he may even be speaking to you right now it is at that point you must open the door only you can do that jesus will not force his way in next section is called receiving jesus christ into your heart it involves a prayer if you're ready for it and if you're ready to turn from your sins and believe in jesus christ so that you can receive the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life then take a moment to bow your head and pray a prayer like this one right now god i'm sorry for my sin i turn from it right now i thank you for sending jesus christ to die on the cross for my sin. Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart and life right now. Be my Lord, Savior, and friend. Help me to follow you all the days of my life as your disciple. Thank you for forgiving and receiving me right now. Thank you that my sin is forgiven and that I'm going to heaven. To be with you eternally. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And for those of you that have already given your life to Jesus, this next section is called Rededicating Your Life to Jesus Christ. Perhaps you are already a Christian, but you have strayed from Jesus Christ. You have been a prodigal son or daughter. God will forgive you right now if you will return to him. He tells us in scripture, my wayward children come back to me and I will heal your wayward hearts. Jeremiah 3 verse 22. If you would like to return to God and rededicate your life to him right now, you may want to pray something like this. God, I am sorry for my sin. I am so sorry that I have strayed from you. I ask you to forgive me now as I repent of my sin. I don't want to live like a prodigal any longer. Renew and revive me 
as I once again follow you as my God. Thank you. Thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Whether you pray to make a first-time commitment or a recommitment, you have made the right decision. God has forgiven and received you if you really meant it. Know that your relationship with Jesus Christ will bring radical and dramatic changes in your life. Describing this, the Bible says, Those who become Christians become new persons. They are not the same anymore, for the old life is gone. A new life has begun. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Now that is good news. But more importantly, God has changed your eternal destiny. Instead of fearing an eternal punishment in a place called hell, you will spend peaceful eternity in his presence in heaven. So what God has done for you now that you've taken this step? What actually happens when Jesus Christ comes into your life? Number one. He saves you from your sins and the punishment you deserve as a result of them, eternity in hell. This is called salvation or regeneration and has to do with what takes place in your heart. God gives you new life. Second, he justifies you. Justification has to do with your standing before God and includes the complete removal and forgiveness of your sins. Think about it. When you receive Jesus Christ into your life, you are completely forgiven. God's word tells us, brothers, listen. In this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is freed from all guilt and declared right with God. Justified. Something the Jewish law could never do. Acts 13, verse 38 through 39. Speaking of our sins, God says, I will never again remember your sins and lawless deeds. Hebrews 10, 17. What a wonderful promise. Justification, however, is more than just the forgiveness and removal of the guilt and condemnation that accompany sin. While God has removed your sins and forgiven you of them, he has also placed the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ into your account, so to speak. You don't have to earn it or try to achieve it. It is yours as a gracious gift from the God who loves you. To understand the justification more fully, there are three um, notes that I'm going to go through below. Number one, God promises, promises us his gracious forgiveness. See 1 John 1, 9. The word confess means to say the same thing as another or to agree with. To confess means that we are agreeing with God about our sin. We are seeing it as he does. We know that God hates sin. Therefore, to truly confess our sin means that we essentially feel the same way God feels about what we have done. After committing that sin, we will be determined to put it out of our lives and never to do it again. That is true confession in the biblical sense. The reason many believers are not experienced the forgiveness and joy they desire is because they have not truly confessed. Once we have met God's conditions, however, we will know his gracious forgiveness. We may not feel forgiven, but we are. We have his word on it. Number two, God has balanced our moral and spiritual budget. See Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. When God makes us right in his sight, he does so by placing all of the righteousness of Christ to our credit. This balances the moral and spiritual budget for us. We now have sufficient capital of character to get on with the business of living. 
Up to this point, salvation has been God's responsibility. From this point on, it continues to be his responsibility, except that we are responsible for the wise investment of our capital of character. That is, we are responsible for living as God desires us to do. It is as if your checking account were empty, but then someone made a $100,000 deposit. What you do with that money is up to you. Number three, God calls us his children. See Luke 15, 11 through 32. This incredible story illustrates what happens when a person turns from sin and returns to God. First, notice that the father in the story did not give this prodigal son what he deserved, banishment. In the same way, we do not receive from God what we deserve, punishment for sin. Second, the young man was given what he did not deserve, the rights and privileges of full sonship. Likewise, although we are not worthy to be called children of God, he calls us sons and daughters. In summary, he doesn't give us what we deserve, judgment. He gives us what we don't deserve, forgiveness and justification. Speaking of sons and daughters, this next section talks about how God has adopted you into his family. Adopted and Assured is this next section titled. We have looked at what happens when we, regener- when we are ge- regenerated, when Christ comes into our lives, and when we are justified, when God forgives our sin and puts his righteousness in its place. Now, let us look at another incredible thing God has done for us. He has adopted us into his family as his children. Adoption means to be given the rights of a son. In essence, you have been given the full rights of sonship in the family of God, as though you were born that way. The story of the prodigal son illustrates this. Luke 15, 11 through 32 again. The wayward son thought that after leaving home, he would no longer be considered his son, but would instead be treated as a hired servant. Much to his surprise, when he came from the long journey home, his father welcomed him and smothered him with kisses. He then gave orders to bring out the best robe and put a ring on his finger, signifying full rights as a son. That is exactly what God has done for you. Take some time now to examine three scripture passages that assure you of your adoption into God's family. This is the last section of the um, portion of this book that I'm going to read. It's three final points once again. Number one, God disciplines his children. See Hebrews 12, verse 5 through 9. Recognizing you are now a child of God is not some distant hope, but a present reality. One of the ways God will remind you of this is by correcting you and bringing you back into line, like a loving father when you stray away from him. Before we were believers, we may have felt no sense of guilt for certain things we did or did not do. But now that we are Christians, God's Holy Spirit shows us the way to live, which includes correcting us. Holy Spirit does not correct us. Because he hates us, but because he loves us as his own dear children. Understanding this truth should help us in the way we behave. Number two, you have an approachable father. See Galatians 4, 6. The Aramaic word translated dear father is Abba, which is a word of affection that a young child would use endearingly towards his or her father. A Western equivalent of that phrase would be Papa or Daddy. God does not want to be viewed as some distant, disinterested father, but as a loving, approachable father to whom 
You can turn at any time because you are his child. Number three, last point. His promises are not based upon your feelings. See 1 John chapter 5, 11 through 13. There will be times as a Christian when you may not feel God's presence. You may even be tempted to doubt that he has come into your life. But 1 John 5, 13 does not say, I write this to you who believe in the Son of God so that you may feel you have eternal life. This is because feelings come and go. They fluctuate. Nor does the Bible say, I write this so that you may hope, if God is in a really good mood, that you have eternal life. It says, so that you may know eternal life is yours. Stand on God's promise to you. You are forgiven. You are justified. You are adopted into his family. And you are assured of salvation. Now that is a reason to rejoice. Alright, well, thank you for listening to this first section of the book, um, How to Find God, Living Water for Those Who Thirst. Um, Most of those Bible excerpts were in the New Living Translation or in the New King James Version of the Bible. And so this was the first section of how you can know God. Um, It started with what is missing in our lives, the solution, Jesus Christ, the response, except God's offer, and what God has done for you adopted and assured so it's really important after understanding who god is who jesus is what it means to be saved giving our life to christ to understand that we are his children it's important to you know go on read the bible pray understand how to have a relationship with god and um have fellowship with other believers so they may encourage you and help you in this path um the next sections of this book um i just wanted to run down through them um hopefully you can study later i'll probably put out um other videos on reading through them eventually as well but um here are the next sections um it's titled reading tracks cornerstones um who is god who is jesus who is the holy spirit who is the devil what are angels what are demons? What is heaven? What is hell? And then the next sections are overall summaries of um, attributes and um, things that come along with believing in God. Um, number one is love, forgiveness, purity, perseverance, honesty and integrity, faith and works, discernment, peace, joy, accountability. And then the next section, before it finally gets into the Bible, um, the New Testament, it goes over um, how to study the Bible. Um, Pray, look for and attend the right church, obey God, resist temptation, live in God's power, share your faith, seek God's will, live as a disciple, give to God have courage in trials. And so those were all the sections of the first steps of um, walking with Christ. Um, Then the um, last sections are um, called off and running. Um, Sections are marriage, children, priorities, prayer time, 
conversation, relationships, responsibility, job performance, attitude towards self. Then it gets into more about how to study the Bible um, and goes on to the New Testament. Um, Matthew all the way through Revelation has an index in it and everything like that. Highly encourage you all to visit a bookstore, a Christian one, um, Christian section even, and find a Bible like this to understand um, foundations of the word, um, foundations of salvation, and understanding how we can have a relationship with God. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. Um, I pray that you may have a wonderful week filled with blessings, with deep, intimate prayer time with God and revelations while you're reading his word. I pray that you may um, have great health during this season. I pray that you may um, be a part of a church and that the whole church of you know, Christ may be united is one and ready for his coming. He is coming soon. In Jesus' name, amen.